0: Well, hi everyone, it's your best friend Ron Knight and today on The Writer's Block, I'm very, very happy to have a man with multiple talents, multiple titles, multiple credits, multiple credentials. As a matter of fact, he has so many, it's kind of a, a whir and a blur, but uh, today we're going to be focusing really on his title as an, as an author and as a writer. And with me today is Mr. Nick Santamaria. Hi, Nick. How are you, Ron? Good to, good to hear you, boy. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Now, just for those of you who are listening and who may not know, you might know of Nick Santa Maria because, oh boy, here we go. Nick is, <laughs> Nick is known uh, by a variety of titles. He is an actor. He has appeared on Broadway a couple of times, actually more than <laughs> once in some pretty significant brands, and we'll touch on that. He is a comedian. He's done stand-up comedy. He is a writer, and we'll be touching on that as well. He is also a composer. He is, of course, the published author, which we'll be focusing on here. And uh, he's also a lyricist. And to boot, when you put that all together, he's also a film. Historian, So I guess the running joke back to you, Nick, would be the old uh, ba-dump-bump, which is, what's wrong? Can't you hold a job?
1: (laughs) You know, interestingly, that's that's funny. I always said to myself, as I was getting older and I started looking behind me, realizing that I'm not where I wanted to be um, as yet, uh, I think to myself, maybe I should have focused on one thing rather than all these things, you know?
0: Yeah. So I mean... Give that it, might have it. led
1: to success,
0: you know. Well, I guess, yeah, but on some levels, you you certainly had success, and I think well, yeah, lot, I'm not complaining. Yeah, you've done well. I mean, for those of you who may know or not not know, um, there was for a number of years on Broadway the Disney production of Aladdin, which ran for the longest time and probably really defined some of the beginning years of the Disney foray into the Broadway theater circuits. Like if anybody could do Broadway, Disney felt that they could. And they had for numbers, many years, Aladdin. And mm-hmm. you were kind of well known as the character actor or the focused actor who actually led off and played uh, the genie. in Disney, I was Aladdin. the genie
1: hmm. Uh, Aladdin, a musical spectacular uh, directed by Francesca Zambello, who is one of the top opera directors. Um, she also directed the original production of Little Mermaid for Disney on Broadway. Uh, but yeah, that, that probably is the thing I'm most known for and get the most attention for. Um, which is very nice, you know. It's very nice. A lot of a lot of kids tell me, and when I say kids, I mean they're in their late twenties, early thirties now. You know, credit me with inspiring them to go into theater. I don't know whether they should thank me or not, but um, that's the truth.
0: Yeah, and aside from your Disney credential, for such the longest time, and I don't know if they were actually having you sing opera, being trained by an operatic director. But, <laughs> uh, um, but you also have kind of a history with uh, Mel Brooks with the producers of some sort, do you not?
1: Yes, I was, uh, I was Mel's boy for about five years with uh, the production of the producers. I w- In fact, when I auditioned for um, Stroman and Brooks, uh, they offered me a contract that had to be okayed because it was a first. Um, they wanted me to cover all of the male leads other than Leo and Carmen Gia. Um, and all of the ensemble characters for all three companies, two road companies and Broadway. So they would fly me wherever they needed me. And
0: that was very flattering. Well, I would hopefully uh, think that it probably paid a few bills at the same time. That must have been.
1: You're you're telling me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was a nice, that was a nice uh, paycheck.
0: Mm -hmm. And as an actor, you seem to, and this is kind of interesting, you're an interesting blend because you are an actor, you are a comedian, and yet you also boast this credential as a film historian, and your forte really seems to be a study of the master classic comedies, the black and whites, and Mm -hmm. vaudeville, and how Mm -hmm. vaudeville leapt from, shall we say, the stages over into uh, the beginning of cinema, And looking at that, I want to mention that you also have, with one of your other partners, one of the leading independent comedy productions that are streaming on Amazon Prime currently, even as we speak um as the adventures or the misadventures of biffle and schuster so you're yes one of, you're one of the biffle and schuster guys right
1: i am biffle i'm the dumb one uh if people remember you know the classic comedy teams from you know the old days the laurel and hardy's and the abbott and costellos martin and lewis um they used to make uh, laurel and hardy and the three stooges used to make 20 minute films they used to call them two reelers and um A producer in Los Angeles, Michael Schlesinger, um, got in touch with me and another of my friends, Will Ryan, who you've heard, speaking of Disney, you've heard in many Disney cartoons as a voice artist. um, We became Biffle & Schuster, a 1930s comedy team in black and white. And the films are just like the films of the Three Stooges and Laurel & Hardy and all of those. So that's streaming on Amazon Prime, or you could get it on DVD uh, through Amazon.
0: And interestingly enough wasn't it either you or I guess Will who mentioned something like Biffle and Schuster was the greatest vaudeville team that never existed? Yes that was part of, that was part of our spiel. <laughs> yeah. Fun.
1: Yeah. And you guys yeah. and
0: you guys actually just for the comic fans out there you you gentlemen actually off of that you've spun off your own comic book series. So now there's actually Biffle and Schuster comic books as well, right?
1: There are 5 in the series and there is actually a compendium that you can get all five in one collection and that's also on amazon we also have a book biffle and schuster's uh portable guide to proper etiquette which is uh very funny that's through the oxnard press
0: Oh, my God. You guys are just all over in terms of having littered weight print.
1: <laughs> good choice of
0: words. Yeah. Well, that's good. And as far as the compendium, I know I visited my doctor last week and they're saying I don't need to have my compendium out. Uh, oh, that's yet. good. That's good. <laughs> Not yet, anyway.
1: So listen, let's no. let, I'm I to... getting my, my appendix out. Oh, you which are? Is also, which is also a book thing. Oh yeah, I was going along that line.
0: <laughs> well, you can go along the line. I'm sure they'll find your appendix somewhere at the bottom of the table of cotons.
1: Um, uh, anyway, sloppy Moyle, yes.
0: <laughs> I remember him. You remember I'd, the did, I'd like to introduce you to Doctor Sloppy Moyle. <laughs> How are you Cut. doing, Sloppy? Uh, God. Right.
1: <laughs> he worked for chips. Uh, Yeah. indeed.
0: Um, mm. So let me let me because you've got all this stuff going on. And now to boot, you also have a new book, which is not yet released, but there's already quite the buzz about it. And I want to touch on the publisher McFarland and Company Mm who's probably now one of the, by now, after gosh, what, 50 years, one of the leading publishers of academic nonfiction in the United States. So I'm going to assume that somewhere they've capped. how, how did you, what do you know about your relationship and your feelings about McFarland? And how did you kind of get over here into this academic nonfiction publisher?
1: Okay. And that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, Nowadays, and especially now uh, with the pandemic uh, Facebook has become you know the lifeline to a lot of people and I'm one of those people that I, I do most of my communication through Facebook and um, one of the uh, pages and groups I belong to is called uh, the Marx Brothers Council and uh, they have a wonderful podcast by the way you could uh, get it on um, YouTube. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the uh, the person who runs that uh, page is Matthew Konia. Now, Matthew is an author, uh, quite noted actually. Uh, he, came, he came up with two books uh, about the Marx Brothers themselves, one about Groucho and his work as a single. And the other book is called the Annotated Marx Brothers. Now, what that means is he took every film uh, talked about them in the chapter, and then towards the end he would go to certain points in the film where there is somewhat esoteric material, material that modern-day readers may not uh, know or, or relate to, and he explains what those things are. Um, so that book became quite a hit amongst fans, so uh, he decided he wanted to do the same kind of book about Abbott and Costello. He feels the same way I do about Bud and Lou. We love them. And uh, Abbott and Costello had three times as many films as the Marx Brothers. So he felt a little overwhelmed about it. And he got in touch with me and he said, will you write this book with me? We'll split up the movies and uh, you could write in your style. I'll write in my style and we'll just put it together and he is the one who had the pre-existing relationship with McFarland, and I was sort of grandfathered in. So that's how I, I got with McFarland, a company that I have
0: been reading uh, since I was a little boy. So this is very exciting for me. Wow, isn't that amazing? It's, I think we all have that on some level where there's somebody who is like a hero of ours or some iconic brand. Um, Mm -hmm. Like when I was a child, I mean, this is not as having necessarily to do with publishing or the arts or maybe it does, but it is pop culture. Uh, I was sitting in a home in Southern California and I'd always turn a cereal box around and I would always say, "Okay, it's such and such of white plains, New York, or I'd be reading a comic book for a. Uh, a gum company somewhere in whatever it was, White Plains, New York. And then I actually mm-hmm. found myself living in White Plains, New York. At one point. <laughs> and I guess it's kind of like the same thing. You had this real childhood appreciation for this publisher, and now you're an author with them.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's happened quite a few times in my life. Uh, I, I often tell people, you know, get out of your own way, and you're going to find that a lot of the things you wanted when you were a
0: child are going to come to you. You know, you attract them, yeah, but you have to get great. out of your own way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, touching now on the new book that is coming out, which is, <clears throat> again, as you've said, the annotated Abbott and Costello by yes. is it, by Matthew Conium. Is it Conium? Mm-hmm. Yes. Ma- and, yeah, by Matthew he, Conium, Nick Santa Maria, and it has a foreword by John Landis. Now, how did yes. the how did the John Landis connection come about?
1: Well, there's two connections. One is Matthew's. Uh, I believe that, uh, John did, um, a forward for one of his other books and they forged sort of a relationship. So it, it's mostly through Matthew. Um, with me, uh, John Landis happens to be a Biffle and Schuster fan. So, and he's actually written about us. He's, he's, uh, uh, wrote some blurbs or a blurb for our DVD. So John is, uh, a fan and a friend now.
0: Well, that's very, very cool. So I guess this more or less um, addresses of all the things, given your background and appreciation for the black and whites and for the old vaudeville, and now looking at this as educational or film class cultural matter, and of course for Mm -hmm. fans as well. Of all of them that you could have picked, and there's so many of those guys going all the way back to the Ritz brothers, et cetera, et cetera. My gosh, Buster Keaton. So why Abbott and Costello? Well, um,
1: first of all, uh, we love Abbott and Costello. And we are out uh, to convince the reading public and the people who care about this stuff that Abbott and Costello are at least equal to, if not better, than Laurel and Hardy. And I don't mean better like, oh, look, they're, 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 uh, they they're have more movies and all this stuff. But I'm talking like the artistry. Um, Abbott and Costello are too often shunted into the, and I hate to say this, Ron, but into the Three Stooges category. You know, blue collar comics slapping each other around, nothing of of uh, any any substance. You know that kind of thing. Whereas you know Laurel and Hardy are the darlings of of um, movie buffs everywhere, and I love them too. But the truth of the matter is, when I was a kid, Laurel and Hardy seemed like they were going in slow motion, whereas Abbott and Costello were right in line with me and what was going on inside of me. I'm a New Yorker. I was born in New York, born in Brooklyn. I was raised on Long Island. Uh, I lived in Manhattan for many years. Um, I have that clock inside of me and I love the pacing of Abbott and Costello. I think Lou Costello is one of the unsung comic geniuses of our time. He's he's multi-layered where he could carry a film And he had you know there are some films this is what i noticed as i was writing the chapters for this book uh you have to watch the film a few times that you're writing about and you have to you know you notice certain things one of the things i noticed was in certain films bud's part bud abbott's part could have been played by anybody and that's nothing against bud bud was the greatest straight man in the history of show business as far as i'm concerned but as a character in the films He often plays a secondary role to Lou Costello, who is basically carrying the film. Now, Stan Laurel couldn't do that. Curly Howard couldn't do that. I'm trying to think of all these starring comedians that are revered today. Uh, Lou is one of the people that actually could carry a film on his own. And I'm talking a feature film, not even a 20-minute film. So we wanted to get that out there. We wanted to let the world know that uh, Abbott and Costello were worthy of as much study and as much appreciation as Laurel and Hardy.
0: Interesting. And do you have an opinion just offhand on what their, I mean, there's so many of their films, but do you have an opinion mm-hmm. on what were their best, <clears throat> excuse me, what were their best films?
1: Well, there's there's, um, of course, any kind of comedy question is entirely subjective, as you know, uh, what makes you laugh may not necessarily make me laugh. But uh, as far as their films, there are certain ones that are considered their best by fans and me, myself included. I would go with uh, uh, Hold That Ghost. Uh, definitely uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Is, that that may be my favorite. I, to me, it's a near perfect film. Um uh, uh keep them flying uh t- the time of their lives is uh, a great film that's the one where uh they they're playing separate characters they're not really a team and lou plays uh, a character from the revolutionary war that is uh mistakenly shot and killed and he comes back to haunt the house where he was uh killed and left you know <laughs> uh, for dead it's a very funny film and bud is wonderful in it playing a character role uh, and he's the one getting uh, hit by Costello all through this movie so it's it's a lot of fun for a lot of reasons so yeah I would say uh, hold that ghost the time of their lives and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein are are their
0: their best yeah, their be- they're best films it's funny how much the spookiness and you know we're kind of here around the day of the dead Halloween and this spooky theme but Hollywood mm-hmm. had a way of really loving to play on the spooky creepy stuff foreign element yeah. of comedy uh yes. kind of reminds me of the manton that Mo- was it the moreland uh moreland manton films with matt and moreland films oh Manton
1: moreland Manton moreland yes yes yeah. he was the uh he was birmingham jones in uh or birmingham brown in uh the charlie chan films the later charlie chan films yeah uh and his eyes you know could light up the room it's amazing um But yeah, but Lou Costello, Mel Brooks said that uh, Lou Costello had the best scare take in the business. Nobody was better. And that's why they would throw, you know, a a monster in or or a spooky house or whatever, so they could get loose reactions.
0: Yeah, excellent. So, you know, it's an interesting thing. They were a duo and so many of the classic um, vaudeville gone to film duos were mm-hmm. in fact, you know, that power of two versus say the power of three in something like a Three Stooges. But um, so many of them who were so great on screen as icons and brought such levity and joy to the masses, they really kind of had problematic relationships off the camera and in the background. I think the documentary that was just put out or the the uh, overview on the the film that just came out on the history of uh, Laurel. Laurel. Yeah. Kind of really kind of got into how, how, you know, dark and, and, and hurtful and painful their relationship was in Abbott and Costello off the screen. Did they have these same situations where they as contentious, shall we say is as they say, as people say they were.
1: That's a good question. I, I, I do believe that it was a touchy relationship. They were described as uh, like brothers, and you know how brothers can can fight. Um, they were t- together more than they were with their wives. So, kind of put yourself in that place. You're you're with somebody constantly. This person's not related to you. Um, you have a complete. You have a separate personality. That the other person has a separate personality. Um, so, you know, it doesn't always mesh. They had one instance where, uh, this, is, this is kind of famous, um, at one point Lou caught uh, one of his maids stealing uh, money. So he fired her and she went to Bud and Bud hired her. Lou found that very strange and asked Bud to let her go because it made him feel uncomfortable and Bud refused. They did not speak for about 13 months. They only spoke on stage and, you know, they were touring together. They were traveling together. They were, you know, they had to do contract stuff together. They did not speak uh, unless they were on stage.
0: Boy, so that that's pretty heavy. That yeah, must have been very hard. You talk about coming off the stage and saying, okay, let's go get, let's go get dinner. Or let's go get a cup of coffee. And you're sitting there yeah. in, the, in the what in the restaurant in the hotel. <laughs> you yeah, know?
1: exactly. Room service.
0: But you have to understand that,
1: you know, it's it's they were complete separate, different personalities. Lou was a very gregarious, controlling. uh, He was the brains. uh, He was the ambitious one, uh, much like Stan Laurel was uh, with Laurel and Hardy or Jerry Lewis with Martin and Lewis. Uh, Bud suffered from epilepsy and he lived in fear of uh, getting a fit. So he was very to himself. He was very quiet. Uh, Supposedly he was a very kind guy, Um, but you know they were very different, they were just very very different, but also drank a lot because of that, because of his fear.
0: Interesting. What Mm -hmm. I notice when I look at your misadventures of Biffle and Schuster, which is really kind of a fun show, I'm going to suggest that uh, listeners might want to go to Amazon Prime and go have a have a view about five or seven (laughs) times on that one, uh, which is loads of fun. But I notice and I'm going to ask the obvious question. If Abbott and Costello kind of rather inspired you and your performances, either in any manner or in particular in the creation of your uh, your character of Biffle Benny Biffle uh,
1: well yes I, uh, that's an emphatic yes when I was a child the very first person to inspire me was Lou Costello uh, I looked at him and I said that's what I'm gonna be in fact let me tell you a funny story my mom took uh, me and my two brothers to our family doctor and while we were waiting in the uh, in the in the waiting room uh, the doctor came in to talk to my mom And my mom asked uh, if he would look at us and predict what we were going to look like when we were older. What physical traits did he think we were going to take on? And uh, he looked at my two brothers and he said, well, uh, they're going to be tall and uh, thin. Nick, I'm sorry, but you're going to be short and chubby. I jumped up and down, yelling for joy, because I was going to look like Lou Costello. <laughs> and he was completely wrong. I'm taller than both my brothers. <laughs> but uh, um, at that time, I wanted nothing more than to be Lou Costello. Well, you know, so yes,
0: I would say that's an inspiration. Yeah. That's great. And you know, the funny thing is, is he could have said, "You know, I'm sorry. I have a prognosis for you. You have six weeks to live." And here you are. You're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I'm going to go to the other one that happens because so many of us uh, or so many people in the arts, you know, they were legacies. They left such great content behind. Uh, Can you touch on really quickly how Abbott and Costello, how they... How they ended up, we all seem to know about stories of other comedy acts where their intellectual property rights ended up in, gosh, courts, family Mm -hmm. fights, state battles, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, uh, and probably poor because they had to pay so many penalties as ordered by judges and attorneys, Mm -hmm. Um, how did Abbott and Costello end up? Can you touch on that? Sure I can.
1: Uh, they were both hit by the IRS, which to me, I'm sorry, is a, uh, 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 an almost indecent uh, because of the work they did during World War II and the money they raised for the government. They were uh, record breakers in that respect, and Lou uh, almost killed himself on uh, their main tour uh, across the country, he had rheumatic fever. There, he developed rheumatic fever, and it's pretty much what killed him in the end. Um, but no, they the government felt the need to make them examples, and uh, they had an accountant that actually absconded with a lot of their money and had not been paying. What he should have been paying. Now that's not excusing them. They should have been more responsible. They should have checked out what he was doing, but um, they were hit very hard. Uh, Lou uh, came out better. He, he was able to pay it off. Uh, he lost a lot of stuff. He had to sell his house in, in the valley. Uh, he still had his ranch. Uh, he had to sell his rights to a lot of their films, which was a, a major source of income, uh, but he was still working at the end after Abner Costello split up he was still a viable commodity he was making uh, a lot of appearances on the Steve Allen show Uh, he had done an episode of wagon train where he played a a dramatic role as a drunk and he is just wonderful it gave you a clue as to what could have been had he not died uh, of a heart attack at the age of 52 Oh, in 1959. Yeah. Uh, his wife followed him like eight months later, She and she was even younger. She was in her 40s. Um, so anyway, uh, so Lou was able to pay things off. He did not leave his family in debt. Uh, Bud, on the other hand, he got hit a little harder. Uh, and after the team split up and he sold his rights to most of the films and all of that, he was not getting work. Uh, he was older. He was nine years older than Lou. Uh, he had his sickness, his illness, his epilepsy. Um, he did one role on the General Electric Theater. Remember Ronald Reagan used to host it. Oh, yeah. Uh, he appeared in a supporting role with Lee Marvin in uh, uh, one of their plays. And he's very good. He's quite good. But uh, the only other work he was able to do was uh, provide his voice for those awful Abbott Costello cartoons by Hanna-Barbera. Um, that was his final work. He spent the rest of his days in a modest home in Woodland Hills, uh, living off of Social Security mostly. And uh, he passed away, and his ashes were strewn uh, into the ocean.
0: Wow, and that was it. Yeah, wow, and it's uh, it's that's an amazing wrap up given the whole journey there. It's kind of like, I well, guess... think
1: about it. Let me let me just add that uh, during uh, World War II and into Uh, The early 1950s or late 40s, they were in the top 10 box office draws. They were making a fortune, and they never thought it would end. And that was the problem.
0: Well, I guess sooner or later, all good things do come to an end. So there you are. Yes, very true. Anyway, so the title of the book, again, is The Annotated Abbott and Costello by Matthew Conium, Mr. Nick Santamaria, who's on the writer's block with us today, and the foreword by John Landis. And this Hmm. is being put out uh, by McFarland Publishing, which I guess is due out, what, next year sometime? Do you know when the book is coming out, Nick?
1: It'll be early next year. It'll be the first quarter of next year.
0: Q1, quarter one. Well, that's great. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows where to find it. Do we know where it will be available? Is it going to be The Usual Suspects, Ebook. It'll be The Usual Suspects.
1: You can go to the McFarl- McFarland website, or uh, I'm sure Amazon will have it a little cheaper. Um, but yeah, you'll, you'll you, it's The Usual Suspects.
0: Well, that's great. And we look forward to uh, talking with you and following your journey as well, Nick. And again, you, fans, fans, go ahead and check out on Amazon Prime. You'll really enjoy it. If you love old vaudeville and if you want to see the greatest vaudeville team that never existed, go check out The, <laughs> mi- the Misadventures of Biffle & Schuster streaming on Amazon Prime.
1: May I suggest also my website? It's uh, lowercase nicksantamaria.com.
0: You may, and you just did. you want to do it again? No. <laughs> Not
1: for the same money.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Nick, thank you for joining us today. And My we will see everybody again very, very soon right here on the Writer's Block. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you, Ron.